Hello, and welcome to Heart Points, a one-to-one RPG actual play podcast. I am your husband, Zach. And I'm your wife, Diana. And I'm your friend and editor, Zach, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the 2019 PAX Unplugged Retrospective. How are you both doing? (laughs) So natural. (laughs) Wow, got out out of that one. (laughs) Maybe we should have talked about our intro before we just started cold recording it. No, this feels natural. It feels good. Yeah, Yeah, this Mm -hmm. is how people talk, right? Is this how people talk? Mm -hmm, You're doing great. Great. (laughs) Wonderful. Crushing it. (laughs) So we... This is going to be a great recording. Oh, God. This is going to be the panel all over again. We are getting together two months after the fact to to do our retrospective. A little less than that, but yeah. This was Zach and I's third PAX Unplugged and Diana's second. Yes. And we are gonna, we're just gonna go through and talk about it and see what we remember. This was my first year, I think, of a PAX in general, not copiously taking notes constantly. You took notes slow the other times? Yeah, I, I like take a lot of notes during PAX usually. Um, For this or just to have in your memory? It started off just to have. Because I was going to a lot of panels and stuff. Like, when I when I first started going to PAX East and stuff, I would just take notes on the panels that I was going to and um, the games that I was playing and everything that I was discovering. I was just taking, like, copious amounts of notes. I still have, like, notebooks strewn about with, like, PAX East 2012 notes. And then it turned into, like, I was taking con notes for the retrospectives and this was the first year that I just, like, didn't at- take any notes because we were just running around constantly. This mm. was also the first PAX that you didn't, like, meticulously plan from when you woke up to when you left. That is also true. Like, usually I just have, like, an Excel document that has, like, three columns for the three options that I have throughout the day and then just, like, every single hour blocked off. And I did not do that this year. Did it feel different not planning for... Your whole schedule? It did feel different, although I think the the biggest difference was that I did not attend any panels this year. Um, and I'm a little ashamed to admit that because I think panels are really important for growing professional development and like keeping up with what's going on in the industry. But this year I really just wanted to play games. Like I, I've really gotten addicted to getting to play games with new people at conventions um, and Breakout was such an amazing experience uh, in 2019, uh, Breakout Con, of getting to play games with different people that I just really wanted to play a bunch of games. So that's what I focused on this year. And it, it felt, it did, it felt very different. So Zach B, what's your typical, like, preparing for packs? <laughs> I think I'm the opposite of uh, Zach. I just sort of wing it. I, there's usually a couple things that um, I know I want to hit um, or games that uh, Zach recommends that I want to check out. But besides, like, running games on demand stuff, which I've done the last two years, I try to keep it pretty open because there's just so much to be surprised by that I think it's hard to... when you I think when you plan uh, pretty heavily for packs, I think you're missing a lot of other stuff too. Um, so, I don't know. I just kind of take it as it comes. But I probably fall somewhere in the middle. 
I'll open up the app and I'll look at stuff and I'll be like, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. I'll mark these off as things that like I might want to do. And there might be like one or two things a day where I'm like, I need to go to this thing. Like I need to check this one thing out. This is the thing I need to do. But for the most part, I kind of just walk around and see what catches my fancy. And if I have some time, I'll play a game. And if not, then I might check that list of stuff. But I'm pretty like chill about stuff. I get very nerdy at like like school counselor conventions. I get, I get very much like Zach. I will like plan my minute out, be like, I'm doing this and then I'm doing this and I'm going to see this person. I'm going to talk to this. I get like very weird about in my professional life. But for like for gaming and stuff, I'm much more open about it. And I think it's just because you're right. There's a lot to see. There's a lot to see at all of the PAXs, but PAX Unplugged is still discovering itself. And so there's always something new going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of open about it. But I always have an idea, something I could do. So when you say Pax and Plug is still discovering itself, the first thing that I think of is how the it was t- laid out totally differently this year mm-hmm. than the past two years. And uh, rather than the past two years, it's been like kind of evenly split between the two sides of the Philadelphia Convention Center. Mm-hmm. And this year it was like almost entirely... I don't actually think it had anything on the other side. Like, you, we ended up there occasionally, like, because the expo hall kind of spills out into the that one side of the of the convention center. But all of the the main stuff was all consolidated in one side. I think they had a whole new a whole wing that they didn't have last year. Yeah, which was super overwhelming to me. <laughs> yeah, it it definitely helped with lines for getting in. Oh least, yeah, and security was way better. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Everything felt a little bit more like thought out this year. Last year, it felt like, oh shit, we weren't prepared for this many people. I felt like every time I was waiting in line, I ended up like it was just like a little bit crazy. But this year wasn't that. It was much more expedited. It was much faster. It's cleaner. It felt more serious to me in a way that like PAX always does a very good job of making all of its conventions feel very professional and very like well put together. But the last two years, Unplugged has felt like definitely like the little brother or like the the secondary cousin to PAX East. This year, it felt on par with PAX East. Like it was, it, it was very tightly put together. It was very tightly like um, organized and managed, and it it felt it felt really professional. Even if it then also became very overwhelming to me for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Do we want to go through... How do we want to do this? Do we want to go through our days? Do we want to talk about highlights just throughout the whole convention? Let's go through your days. So I wasn't there with you guys on Friday. So talk about Friday. Friday at a convention is always light because everything's being introduced anyway. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about Friday. Friday was pretty good. (laughs) I kind of remember what I did. (laughs) Yeah. So Friday, we... I know we played a game. Yeah. we, We played... Two games on Friday. Zach was running Fall of Magic, and I hopped in on that. And that was a really that was a great game. We played a really cool game where like how many other players? Two? Were there two other players? Two other players. Neither of them had played Fall of Magic before, and they were kind of I, I don't know if they'd ever played a game like Fall of Magic. And one of the things that was interesting is that neither of them felt comfortable defining details of the magus in fall of magic and so we ended up with this game of fall of magic where the magus the mystery of the magus became a a central point because no one wanted to take narrative control of the magus everyone just kind of found excuses to not know anything about the magus and so by the end the magus was like this like 
unknowable force, which was very different than any other Fall of Magic game I've played. Every time I play or observe Fall of Magic, someone does something or the narrative goes in a direction that is totally different from any any other time I've played it. And that that was also the game, I think, where one of the players was, I think, an ogre? I forget what the title is. But I think everyone who is that character interprets it very differently. Mm. So that was the one where he was basically like a one-man band. Oh, yeah, the golem. Yeah, the golem, sorry. Uh, And, like, his chest opened, and, like, there was a harp inside that he could play. Um, That's different. Yeah, which was an interesting interpretation. But, yeah, the the whole Magus thing where it was the first time where the Magus really didn't directly interact with any character for the whole thing, and it kind of worked. There was a point in the middle where I was like, yeah, people aren't really committing to any hard decisions about their character or the Magus Mm -hmm. or anything, but it, I don't know, it was sort of interesting, and it kind of worked. Yeah, yeah, it definitely came together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the game kind of leads you that way. The questions get harder and harder and sadder and sadder. But apparently, wasn't that, didn't that one end happy? Yeah, we brought back magic. Um, Which also is pretty rare for that game. Yeah. Because yeah. by the end of it, usually people are dying and, like, the world is collapsing. And <laughs> Yeah, by the nature of how the questions go, like, usually it gets pretty, it turns into a bummer. But, um... But yeah, we brought back magic and actually, like, everybody had a pretty happy ending. My character was kind of a mixed happiness they lost their love but they gained a new title yeah it was interesting it was cool a i love playing fall of magic and i love playing fall of magic with people who haven't played it before and like seeing them kind of discover uh what is going on in that game is just a really cool experience yeah and i i think there is sort of there's an intimidating barrier at least there appears to be for that game where you're coming up with like vignettes on your own and um but it's interesting to have run it with different people because there's been different levels of comfortability with the game, or at least the premise of the game. Um, and people usually are okay, like, just running with it at some point. Yeah. Usually, like, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour into the game, it sort of clicks to people. Um, and that might seem like a long time, but but at that point, the story really sort of has legs. And um, I don't know. It, it's always very cool. Well, and then you kind of get, like, by that point, you've sort of gotten a feel of how you're supposed to be answering these questions, at least for that game that you're playing. So it does get easier. I totally, I think there is this, like, intimidation factor. The very first time I played Fall of Magic, I didn't play. I sat in the background and was like, I'll be a parrot or something. Like, I'll just be in the background. Because I was so intimidated with playing. Like, I say it all the time. I don't think I'm very good at, like, on my feet thinking. And that game is on your feet because you have to answer those questions. But... You figure it out pretty quickly, and it's always interesting. Every game I've ever played has always been really different and really fun. Mm-hmm. So that's fun that you guys had that experience. Yeah. I like it for a games-on-demand game because you're either running a two-hour game or a four-hour game. And, I mean, we've had other games-on-demand experiences where the rules are either um, not explained fully, so you don't quite know what you're doing, or the rules explanations take up a lot of your time. Yeah. Um, but Fall of Magic... The rules are very short. I can do it in like a minute, minute and a half, and just kind of get people going um, and sort of explore the game as we play. So I feel like it's a really good fit for that setting. But, I agree. Yeah. What else did you guys do Friday? That's a good question. Good question, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you played two games. I know you walked around the convention floor. Yeah. We spent some time exploring the convention floor, and uh, there was some really cool stuff. Uh, my haul by the end of the convention was like was amazing um one of the things that i remember we saw friday we we kept in mind the whole 
like that I, I ended up buying um, and I was so excited for this was um, there was a game, there was an RPG slash adventure that had come out for Zine Quest by, uh, called Casket Land by Mary Enger. Um, and it's this amazing little, uh, I think it's screen printed zine of a dark Wild West fantasy scenario. And that was one of the things that I saw Friday that I was like, I think I'm going to probably get this. I think I'm going to buy this. Um, and I eventually did, and that was awesome. Uh, I bought A Cozy Den by Kira Mag- Magrin. A Cozy Den is a game about uh, lesbian snakes uh, waiting out the winter, and I want to play this so bad. I bought this first thing um, from Jim Likes Games because last year it sold out. So Friday we also we met the people who made Illumat and the new, oh, yeah. uh, the new McElroy tabletop game. The Adventure Zone game, um, Together Studios. Yep. Um, so we met them. I've always I'm a big fan of the Decemberists. So I've always wanted to play this game. So we got that quickly demoed for us, which I ended up buying because it's very good. But yeah, so that, that was pretty cool. Yeah, we played that a lot over the course of the yeah, con. I've played it a lot since, and it's a very simple game, but I'm still getting used to the strategy and even the rules. <laughs> uh, yeah. I want to play think, more of that. Shit, did you bring that? I should have asked you to bring that. <laughs> Shit. I didn't bring it. Sorry. I think I only played it once on Sunday while we were waiting. I may have played it twice. Um, but it really is a fun game. Mm-hmm. Like, it is, there's a, a lot to it. So it's kind of easy to miss stuff, but it's a, lo- it's a lot of fun. If you get a chance to play it, you should play it. Yeah. It's sort of a simple, like, card trick-taking game. Yeah. Um, like, there's a very pretty mat you play on in the boxes, uh, a component of the game, which is very cool. Um, and my partner, who is a very mathy person, I took it home to her, and she kicked my fucking ass. <laughs> she, like, destroyed, like, wiped me off the board the first time we played it. And I was like, okay, I think I need to... <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to reassess some of the strategy here. But it like it's the kind of game where if you're into trick-taking or mathy type games, it just clicked for her. Yeah. She's like, oh, I get this. And she just did it. Cleaned me out. So nice. It was just fun to look at the pretty cards. God, <laughs> That's very what I beautiful. Do. <laughs> yeah, the game is gorgeous. And I it's I am mad at myself that it took us like three years to try Illamot. Because I saw it and I was like, uh, oh, card game, you know, that's I'm not really into card games. So I just kind of just like ignored it. And everybody was like, oh, Illamot's great. You should try out Illamot. You should check out Illamot. It's amazing. And it's like, I don't know, winning awards and it, everybody's talking about it. And I was like, yeah, but it's, what, what, it's a card game. And then we played it and I was like, oh, shit, this is fun. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that it's, it is a card game. Like, it's not, it's not that it's not a card game. It's not that I was wrong about what it was, I was just wrong about how much fun yeah. it would be. I might just be speaking for myself, but I think, and no disrespect to the Decemberists who are definitely listening to this episode, <laughs> but I think there's, with the like board game revival of the last decade or so, I think there's a thing where you see people like musicians or other kinds of artists who don't do board gamey, tabletop gamey type stuff, and they're like dabbling in it, mm-hmm. and I, I have this innate suspicion of like, it's probably not very good, which it is not fair to them because this is a very good board game, um, and the designers of it did an amazing job. But you know what I mean? Like it, it feels like there are people dabbling in the hobby that feel like they're taking advantage of how popular it is at the moment. Yeah. Well, it just like licensed licensed yeah. games in general yeah. are things that are yeah. very even like video games have a very bad track record of like like video board games that have been adapted from video games. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually aren't great. Um, 
I'm speaking generally, but so that there was some innate suspicion, at least from in my part from Illumat, um, but it proved me wrong. Yeah, it's it's so expertly designed. Um, and uh, yeah, we got to talk to Jen and Keith of Together Studios, uh, and they are just so nice and delightful, and I want to talk to them again so badly um, because they're just very cool, and their new project for the Adventure Zone board game seems really interesting. I, I'm kind of on the fence over whether or not it's something that I feel like I need on my shelf. I'm convinced now that Illumat is something I need on my shelf. Sorry, Diana. Um, Sorry, I- Diana. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have an argument with him about Fall of Magic all the Yeah, time. well, Illumat is not $90. No, right. It's yeah. different. But, like, I think the, uh, the Adventure Zone board game seems like a really cool... It seems like a really interesting transitionary space between dungeon like that that's bringing these different uh fandoms and mediums together to that would be like a very good transition for for getting from one place to another place right so like adventure zone fans are going to get into it because they like adventure zone uh D fans are going to get interested in it because of D and like board game fans are going to get into it because it's a very good board game but it could transition from like one to the other very nicely I could see somebody picking up this board game because it's a really fun looking board game that also kind of like leads you into GMless role playing and then coming away being like, I want to dig deeper into like role play games. And mechanically, it seems super cool. I think it's like, it looks really fun. I don't know if I have space for a fantasy adventure board game when I would probably just play a fantasy adventure game. Although I just, I do love Adventure Zone. A lot. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of like on the fence over whether or not the Adventure Zone board game is something that I'm going to, that I'm going to need. Um, although I really like it and ho- I want to get a chance to play it next year in 2020. Yeah, I, re- I really would have liked to demo it, but it seemed like there was a line. Um, yeah. Every time we walked by their booth, so I'm interested in like the mechanics of it. But I never thought about about it like that. I- it's interesting that it does inhabit this weird space of because they're it's a D and D it's a tabletop game based on a and d game it's weird I, I could see it being an entry into like tabletop board gaming type things but yeah you're right i don't know if i'm ever gonna want to play it when i have so many other games yeah what do you think diana should i add it to our should i no. put it on our shelf no what there should be and i need like librarians of the world to unite i need public libraries to have indie games that you can just rent out because I am tired of having all of these games in my house that we've played twice because the circumstances under which you can play that game are very few and far between. Twilight Imperium is a really good example. You guys have been playing a lot of it lately, but it is a long, long game, Mm -hmm. especially the third edition. It's like a 12-hour game. Do you need to own a game that you're going to use maybe once a year because it's 12 hours? No, but should you rent it from the library? Yes, libraries, get on this. I know you have so much money to just go around buying indie RPGs and games. Just do it. I'm sure there are some public libraries that stock up on board games. Yeah, but they probably stock up on, like... Probably more common ones. Yeah, like more common ones. But if you stocked up on this, then I wouldn't have to own it in my house. I don't want it in my house. Luckily, there's, like... There's no space in my house. There's, like, three board game cafes in Philly now. So we're going to have more and more options coming up. That bubble's going to burst. <laughs> that requires leaving the house 
and going very far. That's true. The library is not very far. So your library point, I don't mean to jump ahead, but it, it reminds me of the Library of Alexandria oh, yeah. thing at PAX, which we didn't hit on Friday, I don't think. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're a separate organization that mm-hmm. came to PAX and basically had a room, and it was an RPG library where you could go in and borrow books and play a game, um, which seems like an awesome idea. Um, but again, that's like its own organization. I don't yeah. know what their affiliations are with like libraries or anything like that. But yeah, I, libraries should totally get on this gaming yeah, thing. They definitely should. But I do. I like that about PAX that it has these options. Like you can go and test out like board games and stuff with the game library. You can go test it out, or you could test out role playing games, or just like sit down and read a role playing game and maybe try some some aspects of it out with the. Library of Alexandria. I like that. I like that PAX gives you those options because some of these games are kind of expensive. Fall of Magic is $90. Like, if it's not something you've play-tested before or, or gotten to touch and hold in your hand, is that really a game that you want to pay for? It's hard to make those decisions when you're Diana. When you're Zach, not Zach B, but when you're Zach, you like to spend the money. Like, you, like, you used to have it. <laughs> Zach and you have B all has this space. problem also. <laughs> you guys just, like, spend the money. Like, you have it, and you have all the space in the world for all these games. Like, there's a finite amount of space in a house. <laughs> there's only so much, that, there's only so many games that you can fit in your house. <laughs> and getting to, getting, being able to, like, touch it and, and, and feel it and, like, see it, I think is a really cool thing that PAX allows you to do, that PAX Unplugged allows you to do. But... Speaking of games that you get to touch and feel, you guys both did the math trade? Yeah, that was at the end of the night on Friday. Um, I do the math trade every year, and I love it. And I finally convinced some, I think only, well, no, a couple of our friends tried it. But I think you're the only other one who had success with it, right? Yeah. And uh, this year, what did I get? I got Sushi Go. I got Cash and Guns, which is like... My favorite party game right now is Cash and Guns. I friggin' love that game. I got uh, Megaland, which is a uh, Red Rook, Red Crow game. Um, it's made by the same... Uh, Ryan Lauket, I think is the name of the designer. He also did Above and Below and um, some other games that I just love the art for. Uh, Megaland, I think, is the one that I'm least interested in, but whatever. I got for five bucks. I don't care. Um, I got... Uh, and then I got Rex, which is like is like a holy grail game for me. We have to play that. I've wanted that game forever. Uh, Rex is the um, the 1970s. Is that when Dune came out? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, it's a reskin of the Dune board game when you couldn't get Dune for licensing reasons. It finally just like was re-released in 2019. Um, but for a while, you couldn't get Dune, uh, the Dune board game, so they reskinned it under the Twilight Imperium intellectual property, whatever setting. And I've wanted it forever because I love the Twilight Imperium setting. Um, and now Rex is out of print and I was able to get a copy of that. And it's like, it's gorgeous. It's like new. It's so beautiful. I'm so happy. <laughs> and I got all those and I got something else too. And I cannot think of it now, but I got all those for like 30 bucks. It was a great haul. It made me very happy. I got Betrayal in the House on the Hill, which is um, a really fun game that I've played a couple times but never owned, so I'm excited about that. And I got um, the Game of Thrones board game, the second edition. And this is going back to your point, Diana, about like the practicality of owning games. Yeah. It's reached a point now where it's almost like I'm collecting because that is a game I don't think 
I, I may not ever get to play that game, and I'm fine with it. I got, <laughs> I got it for 10 bucks, but it's like, to me, it's like, it's a touchstone of a certain type of game that I like playing yeah. that gets referenced a lot, and people hate it or love it, um, depending on who you talk to, but just like being able to own it and look at it, and like, I, it was like the first thing I did after PAX was open that up and just like take all the parts out and just read the manual, and I'm like, cool, this game, I would play this game, I probably never will, but I'm fine with it. Like, just yeah. being able to own it is... It's its own problem now. Is yeah. now I like having games just to say that, that they're in my them. house and I have them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a collecting bug is <laughs> yeah. the worst. But uh, so Betrayal and uh, Game of Thrones for twenty bucks. Nice. That's good. Very good. I mean, that's a pretty good haul. I'm never mad at your math trade stuff. The hopeful goal is that you would get rid of some of the games that you don't want. Yeah. That has. I think never happened. No. You almost always exchange for money. Yeah. But they're still like discounted. I'll take it. That's fine. I would like to get rid of all 4,000 Munchkin copies that we have. <laughs> Listen, Maybe just keep one. I didn't go two. that bad into Munchkin. I have like four <laughs> copies of Munchkin. It's a lot of copies. We did recently start playing Munchkin again, though. Well, kind sort of. of. Kind we're, of. We're trying to get other people into board games, and Munchkin is like just such a good on ramp. I mean, into, it's kind of how we got into it. Uh, yeah, yeah. We really got in with uh, Killer Bunnies was yeah. our like introduction to going hardcore into board games, and then that led very naturally into Munchkin, and then it just kind of kept going from there. But yeah, the problem is all the board games that I want to get rid of in the math trade are the same ones. That, like, other people who got started in board games already bought and got rid of, yeah. like, yeah. years ago, too. So. We'll just have four munchkins for the rest of our lives. That's fine. That's true. That's fine. Um, Anything else on Friday you want to talk about? So, we, we did another game with the Games on Demand that I've been wanting to play forever. So, last year I had a really fun time playing Fantasy Flight Games' uh, Legend of the Five Rings. And I really wanted to do it again this year. The scenario sounded cool, but it also required us to get up really early and get to the convention center really early and sign up and get in line. And I was just like, I don't, I just can't, I'm 31 years old. I can't do this shit. Um, so. So old. <laughs> you, you poor man. <laughs> <laughs> My bones are creaking. So instead we, uh, I saw that there were a couple instances of Thousand Arrows on the uh, Games on Demand list. Thousand Arrows is the Powered by the Apocalypse game of uh, kind of samurai warfare, I would say. You play as generals? You play as commanders? Yeah, commanders. In like a period of, of military conflict. Its kind of stats are very heavily derived from uh, Legend of the Five Rings. It definitely has a lot of Legend of the Five Rings DNA in it, hmm. but it is Powered by the Apocalypse. I was like, let's do this instead. This might be a good compromise. Uh, so we played that, and it was a very interesting experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I've heard you talk about Legend of the Five Rings before, and it, it did sound amazing. And then you've brought up Thousand Arrows. So when we saw this on the list, I was like, oh, yeah, we, we definitely need to give this a try. I'm still processing it, <laughs> two, like almost two months after PAX. Yeah. We talked a lot about this game, like, yeah. that night. We talked about this game for, like, at least three hours straight, talking about, like, how we felt about the mechanics and, like, the way it does certain things. Yeah. Civil War-era feudal Japan is very much my jam. Um, I'm into that kind of stuff. Musashi is my favorite book, I think. Very into it. So, I conceptually and thematically, I was all about it and very ready to get into it. It's a, The game is a weird combination of... 
like a military sim combined with like a powered by the apocalypse like like relationship heavy game if yeah. that makes sense like, and like romantic relationship or just like just like bonds. interpersonal okay. like like you're playing commanders um so and you're supposed to have relationships with each other mm-hmm. and similar to like anything that uses bonds or something like that mm-hmm. your characters are supposed to be connected and um i think the way the game is intended you might betray or honor those relationships depending on on the history that you've come up with okay. and how they play out in the game. Okay. Um, th- which is not dissimilar to any other um, Powered by the Apocalypse games that we've played. Right. Um, but then there's this, mili- this in my experience of playing tabletop RPGs, a pretty heavy military sim element thrown into it where you're a commander that has soldiers and you can tell your soldiers to do things. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of mechanics that have to deal with, okay, when you want your soldiers to do this thing, you're rolling a certain kind of move. And then there's like casualties involved. It it, it seems like a lot of GM work, um, and we played a very sort of tight scenario with a, in limited time. Right. So I'm still on the fence about how I feel about all those elements coming together, and or if they do come together. Yeah, and this was partially just because of our scenario, but like we didn't engage with any of those moves that are based around like character relationships. We only really had opportunities to engage with the like the the warfare elements and what felt weird to me was that there's really only one real move that like is about your uh is about your soldiers the soldiers under your command um and that was the only move that we engaged with really so it had like this weird we felt like we were playing the wrong game basically is kind of how i ended up feeling Um, Because I see this move that's like express yourself through art. And I was like, oh, well, I would love to do that, but I'm in the middle of this battle. So I'm not really going to be able to do that. But then at the same time, like the soldiers under your command are quantified, like like, um, like specifically. Yeah. So I was playing an admiral who had uh, 50 Marines under their command. And the thing I came away with was with with 50 Marines... I might as well have had infinite marines. Like, I could divide them up however I want. It never mattered, like, mechanically. If I said I had 10 marines going off this way and 10 going this way, or 25 and 25, or, or whatever, there was no mechanical, uh, there was no role that was, like, pitting force size against force size, really. I, and I did. I don't think I ever saw that in the moves, like, the same way that, like, Apocalypse World might treat gang sizes. So... I had 50 Marines. I could do whatever I wanted with those 50 Marines. Mechanically, narratively, I might as well have had infinite Marines. I might as well have had infinite resources. It would have had the exact same effect. And I think we all had that experience with, like, even you, you had uh, 12 ninjas. You were, like, a spy master, right? Yeah, I was a an old retired, or had just come out of retirement for this mission, spy uh, mistress um, who had, like, yeah, like a dozen ninjas. Um, but all like in a similar vein, 12 seems more like a more manageable number, but it also felt sort of infinite. Like when I had my ninjas do, like I had to come up with things for my ninjas to do, but the most gratifying parts of the game were when my character personally engaged with the other characters. And there was this like tension of, well, why is she coming out of retirement for this thing? Like, what do the other characters have over her that got her to like do this mission? And like, that was the interesting part. My ninjas doing stuff was never really that gratifying. And we, a friend of ours who played had, like, 200 horsemen. Yeah. And that, like, <laughs> if 12 felt infinite, 200 horsemen felt, like... And it, it, it just feels, at a certain point, like, in certain aspects of the game, you can do anything. Yeah. And then in other aspects of the game, there's not much... 
there wasn't much there. But I think that might be the scenario that we played. Um, like Zach was saying, the rulebook has all these different moves and really cool things that you can do. And it sort of just felt like we were we were being shown the one part of the game, which I think for us, at least in the games that we play, was the least interesting part. Yeah. Yeah. I think the... Th- I think one of the things that I came away with was I could see this game being absolutely amazing for like a court drama, court intrigue, where um, it's like semi-PVP, all these different commanders in like in the same city or something competing for power and using their forces like behind the scenes to try to consolidate that power. I think you could you could get an amazing like it, it reminds me of like king's landing in game of thrones or just game of thrones in general the way that you had all these like the heads of their houses competing for power and using their soldiers to to hold on to it um i, I think you could get an amazing interpersonal drama going in that kind of scenario but like i don't know how good big battles are going to feel in this game because th- that's what we did right we played a big battle and it just kind of felt uh it felt okay i guess but yeah it never felt as good as like arguing with another character yeah because it never really felt like our characters were in any kind of danger did you did it ever feel like your character was in danger no i felt the same way and the game comes across this might be a little unfair just because we played a very limited scenario but the game comes across as like a military history buffs type of game where the soldiers that you're throwing into battle are just sort of statistics and like they don't have names they don't have faces they're just sort of numbers that get Mm. crunched into the mechanics of the game and the interpersonal stuff is the stuff that sort of hit me the most and I don't know. It, it felt odd, like, having 12 ninjas. I don't know anything about them. They can go die, yeah. and it has no effect on the game, really. Yeah. I want to play it. I, the thing is, I do want to play it again, because there's so much about it that I want to like, and I think there's more there. Just flipping through the rule book, I was like, there's so much here that's really cool. Right. Um, so I think it would be worth exploring, but... Shit, I'm getting mad now. <laughs> All right, hold on, because now I'm thinking about how well other Powered by the Apocalypse games have, um, have handled being the the head of a gang right um so like in first edition apocalypse world the chopper their whole thing was that they have a gang of about like i think 10 bikers and so all their moves are about managing those bikers and what those moves do is give the bikers personality and you're encouraged one, one of my favorite things about apocalypse world and gming apocalypse world is when somebody has like a gang coming up with names for the members in the gang is so easy because you just like look around you and think of like what artifacts from now in the future would be a would be like a character's name so uh like every game of apocalypse world i run that has a uh has like a gang one of the gang members name is nintendo just like always and nintendo is always an asshole and all <laughs> never ever wants to listen to the gang leader is always like the starscream style like person starstream style character who's like trying to wrest control from the 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 leader and the moves support that and they encourage that and when the the moves give your units personality and i did not get that from thousand arrows one thing I'm thinking about now is the way our scenario was set up. Your character was sort of... It, it was your character's mission, and we were all sort of going on it, right? Mm-hmm. And there was an implied um, hierarchy where you were sort of the leader of this mission, and we were sort of the, the different parts of your army that commanded them. 
but then immediately the level below that it's it's ambiguous where you have just soldiers that you send to do things and i'm i'm wondering if there's like another level i hate to add more military (laughs) similarities to this but like if my character had like uh, a lieutenant and like it was my son and it's like I can send my ninjas to do something, but then that puts them in direct danger. Like, yeah. th- then there's a then there's a level of responsibility yeah. that you feel for these soldiers who otherwise I don't know. I we spent I spent much much of the game trying to figure out what these ninjas did. Yeah. <laughs> and like why I would want them to do things. Yeah. Yeah. Or if there are consequences for if they fail. You know what I mean? Yeah. And all of this is with the the caveat that we played a very short game. Yes. I, I think it was even it was only a two hour was, it was that a two, two hours. hours. There was only a two-hour window. Uh, we haven't actually read the rules, only, like, the the, the player move handbook mm-hmm. or handouts uh, that were at, this, at the table. So the game might support a lot of the things that I think we're, that we might have concerns over. This is, this is all from just a very brief yep. experience with the game. Yep. So it's still in development. It's, uh, it, I don't think it's come out yet. It was kickstarted last year, maybe two years ago. And... Uh, Either in 2018 or 2019, it was kickstarted. And uh, we're still, you know, there's still a lot of room. I would want to spend more time with it. Yeah. Um, I think right now, though, like, given the option, I would probably just, like, I would probably rather play, like, Hearts of Wulin, the uh, PBTA Wuxia game, and just reskin it to be in Feudal Japan. Like, I don't think that would, I don't think you'd have any problems with that. And also, every time we start talking about this, I'm like, Zach and I could probably write a military PBTA game. <laughs> well, we've, we've talked about like a gritty samurai uh, game, yeah, which is what I think I want to play, and I think I'm searching for a game that gets closest to it, and I haven't found it yet. But yeah. um, we are 40 minutes in, and Jesus. we haven't we haven't gotten out of fa- Friday yet. Um, <laughs> well, is there anything else to talk about? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, do you no, have no, any? No. Um, Saturday. So Diana joined us on Saturday. I did. Really? At that point, moderately pregnant. <laughs> I mean, were... isn't isn't pregnancy just like a checkbox? Like you are or you are not. Um, I was showing. I had to wear showing. special but, pants. But you hadn't so. quote unquote. I don't. Th- you hadn't quote unquote popped yet, though, right? So I have had. Okay, okay. So this is not what you came to this podcast to listen about for. Um, but anyway, this is okay. You <laughs> people will tell you that you've popped when you're pregnant, and what they mean is, oh my gosh, I can now tell that your baby is in your body because your stomach and abdomen area has distended itself in a way that identifies you as pregnant. I have had three of those. (laughs) (laughs) Like, in the very beginning, in the very beginning, I was maybe like 16 weeks, I had like popped enough that my pants didn't fit anymore, but I was too small to buy normal pants. So everybody was like, oh my God, you popped, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. But I could still definitely hide my stomach. Like you couldn't tell that I was pregnant if I wore certain shirts. Then maybe like 20-ish weeks, um, I popped again. And now it was like, I could still hide it, but it was harder to hide it. And now, Diana now can no longer hide it and has to wear a completely new wardrobe. And so someone came up to me the other day and was like, you popped. Like, I popped a long time ago. This fucking gremlin has been growing for a long time. At PAX, I had gone through (laughs) one of those poppings. Okay. So I was wearing special pants, but they weren't maternity (laughs) pants yet. They were just, like, special. I don't fit into any of the pants I own, nor do I fit into any of the pants that have been created for people in my condition. I have to wear leggings. So I wore... I wore special leggings. 
And I think a shirt that was a little bit tighter so that people knew I wasn't waddling because I waddled. <laughs> I was waddling for a reason. And I waddled. I was waddling. So it was kind of obvious that I was with child. <laughs> kind of, I was kind of obvious. So what did you think of your first day of PAX? PAX is always really overwhelming for me because I don't always handle groups of people very well. And so, and I took a train in because you had already been at PAX. You were already staying somewhere much closer to the convention. I was at home. So I took a train in and I had to walk across the entire convention center to enter the convention to then go to where I originally started from, which meant that I had to walk by a lot of people and I'm an aggressive walker. I'm an aggressive city walker, especially when I'm by myself, especially when I'm annoyed with people. So my elbows were out. I was power walking. I was out of breath because I'm always out of breath now. It was a whole ordeal. That's how I started PAX. It went well, though. (laughs) Like, no one bumped into me. No one was mean to me. Like, I don't think I had any passive aggressiveness this PAX. We always have really good experiences at Unplugged. The people at Unplugged are really nice compared to... PAX East. East. Which, the people at PAX East are usually pretty great. There's just Um, a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And I always have, like, at least one or two, like moments where like somebody is just rude but that's never happened at unplugged yeah that is very true i didn't i didn't have any issues with it it was it went it was well i don't know it went good i'm bad at speaking this is apparently not the day for me to be doing this podcast today um but i think it went well yeah i met you guys i met you guys at like the coat check area and then we walked around the convention floor a little bit which is always overwhelming but it's super fun. Like, it's always fun to walk around and see the games and see the different, like, stalls and stuff. I will always walk by the furniture the furniture um, booths, the people who sell, like, the gaming tables and yeah. stuff. I will never buy one of those tables, but I will always walk by and be like, oh, my God, how amazing would it be to have this, like, amazing gaming table with felt or, like, a TV in the middle? Like, just daydream a little bit about the furniture you can have. Yeah. i will always walk by those they're usually some of the first ones that i find but on saturday we played a bunch of board games and then i had to leave and you guys went and played another game i'm trying to think if i missed anything we played a couple board games what was the board game we played with with ninjas or samurai yeah yeah so uh one of the one of the really cool things that happened on saturday was we got to meet up with some uh other people we know from the podcasting space and just talk and play some games, and it, it, that was great. I'm trying to remember like the order of people that we met up with. Saturday, I think we met up with uh, Lauren Bryant Monk of uh, Too Many RPGs. Uh, she is uh, at JL underscore nice girl on Twitter. Does Too Many RPGs, does some streaming, works on the uh, Safety Tools Toolkit. State Safety Tools, Safety Tools Toolkit. I think that's right. That sounds right. Um, does a lot of work around playing RPG safely and does a lot of really great, important work. Um, so we met up with, uh, uh, yeah, met up with uh, Lauren and her now fiance, Jeff. Congratulations, you two. Woo! <laughs> uh, and we played Samurai Showdown, which is this game that we saw reviewed by Shut Up and Sit Down. Zach and I watched that review like a long time ago, and they gave it really good reviews, and we played it, and I couldn't get over how much fun the mechanics of the game were and how bad the thematics of the game were. The art is kind of cringy. The art's ter- the art's pretty bad. <laughs> the villains were better. The, that was the, like the most frustrating thing is that the villains were really cool, but the characters that you're playing with are all older dudes. Yeah. 
who basically all look pretty much the same. All are just like scowling with two swords in their hands. And it's just, I don't know why that it got to me so badly, but it really got to me that it like all of the characters in the game were men. All of them were identical. I think it's because the art was so close to being really cool and the thematics were so, so close to being really cool. Um, it just, it just felt like it was missing something. Yeah, it, it's a pretty cool, like, card risk management game. It's a cooperative game where you're, um, it's like a seven samurai style, like you're defending, um, a village from bandit attacks. And yeah, the card art is kind of wonky, but the, the board art is actually kind of, I liked it. Like it, yeah. you, you get like a little miniature village that you have to protect and like things get destroyed and, but yeah, the, and it doesn't quite match the card art, but it ended up being a very cool like risk management game we talked a lot about like if it was skinned differently it would be no question about owning it mm-hmm. um but be, but as is we none of us, i don't think any of us were like yeah i want to own that game it was fun to play though i would play it again but yeah not even the theme it's the artwork like the th- i didn't have an issue with the theme like the location or what you're doing it's just like the artwork of the characters that you had but what we haven't talked about is on the flip side of your samurai there's an animal i forget if that was your spirit animal yeah no you could turn into a like a you had an animal form yes like an animal hybrid form yeah a furry form yes and that was cool where you did like more damage or something yeah Yeah. um but yeah not to get on my samurai soapbox again but i think (laughs) i think i like it would have been cool with just, like, a gritty samurai game. Like, yeah. The, yeah. the animal, the turning into an animal thing was interesting. The art was weird. But I don't know. I think I just would have accepted it as, like, a samurai, like, yeah. risk management game. Like, I don't know that I needed I don't think anybody... the cartoonish art with it, if that makes sense. Mm-mm. I don't think anybody even used the animal form when we played. I think or I did like, once. Like, one, yeah, like, once. It wasn't. It didn't end up being a huge part of our game. Well, that but... might also be why we lost, really pretty terribly yeah. <laughs> we did very bad at it um we did we did do but the, like the animal thing only triggers when your character's about to die it's not something that you can really do willingly right um yeah, anyway yeah um, we did that and then you guys played a game based on jane austen later yeah we met up with uh lauren and jeff again to play good society a um like a jane austen period romance game God, that was good. I still think about my character in that game. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe twice a week I think about Hale Pearson. <laughs> so in- introduce your character. So Hale Pearson was a... He grew up in the church. I think his parents were... I forget exactly what his background was, but his parents might have been clergy or something. Yeah, they were. Okay. Uh, he was a composer, and he worked primarily for the church, but he was sort of, um, he was sort of up and coming. He wasn't quite that successful yet. And he was sort of, he had a relationship with Zach's character, who was his patron, patron sort of patron of the arts, but also kind of a dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but also Hale was like interested. He was very shy. His other friend, who Jeff uh, played, was sort of a partier and like a rabble rouser. Um, so Hale didn't quite fit in with any of these crowds. But he was he was looking for. I think he genuinely wanted friendship, but also looking for like romantic interests and. Uh, relationships that would sort of further his career but that that was hail i was playing argus who was a um was a socialite who uh came from nothing and was uh determined to secure his place in the good society and was going deep into debt 
to try to uh, try to like secure riches for he- him and his uh, boyfriend. And Argus was a little bit of a jerk, um, but also like very sincere. So I find that I have a problem. I have a I have a lot of difficulty playing games like Good Society, like uh, Hearts of Wu Lin, um, Legend of the Five Rings, any games that require. Um, you to play up that sort of historical skill that I do not have of sort of speaking politely while also attacking people. I cannot do that. I am a naturally like very sincere, hard on their sleeve person. I can't speak in double entendres. I just don't know how to do it. I just can't. Um, so anytime I play a character in those games, I really struggle to play a character who is capable of doing that kind of like manner dance, that dance of manners. So Argus was just like this very forward, just kind of like war's hard on his sleeve kind of person, which, um, you know, I, I would really want to get better at that genre, you know, to, to keep playing these games. Um, I, I had fun. I hope the rest of everybody had fun, um, Big shout out to uh, Lauren for GMing that game so masterfully and putting up with yeah. me not really knowing that genre enough to to play in it. Well, maybe we should talk a little bit about how the game worked because I think uh, some of the mechanics of the game actually lend itself to um, bringing in people who might not be totally comfortable with that setting. Oh, for sure. Um, because I, I am not a Jane Austen <laughs> heavy reader, uh, nor am I totally familiar with that setting, but... Lauren set up the game in a way where she asked us a lot of questions about, like, how historically accurate do you guys want to be? Like, lots of different things that gauged our comfortability with different aspects of that time period and also what we were comfortable with having in the game. So that that was an amazing way just to start, because even before we started playing, I already felt comfortable knowing that, like, I didn't have to pull Jane Austen references out <laughs> yeah. um, to, to have a good time. So That, that, was, that was a lot of fun. That was probably my favorite game of the con. I that think. was absolutely my favorite game of the con. I think so. Yeah, there, and there's not like a lot to say about it other than like I really enjoyed it. The, the interpersonal drama that yeah. we got from that is so good, and the way the game supports building up that interpersonal drama, I really I need to get a copy of this game so that I can check out the rules and see how those webs are built. Mm-hmm. Um, because my basic understanding of it felt a little pre-generated. I, I'm not. I don't know how much variety you have. Like, if I play the socialite again, am I still going to be the patron again? Because they're tied in in specific ways. I'm not sure. Well, we picked those ties. We picked the... Did other... we pick the... Oh, yeah. you're right. We did pick those but, ties. But we only had three of us, and we sort of had to pick them based on what uh, backgrounds made sense for those relationships to happen. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I understand it feeling a little pre-generated and Lauren did say that it's meant for sort of campaign play mm-hmm. um, and there are elements that we didn't play with because we were just doing a one-shot but even with a one-shot the way the game like I played Zach's boyfriend and like, like you play yeah you, you play, play secondary people, characters yeah you play secondary characters that are involved in other people's relationships that you as a player don't necessarily have um, like any skin in the game yeah um, and that it keeps everyone involved and it it just it made for a really great story where everyone was really like sort of pulling for each other's characters and mm-hmm. like wanting them to succeed and do well and tell good stories. So it it was just amazing. Yeah. It sounds like the exact opposite of Thousand Arrows. It's in a lot of ways it's the exact opposite <laughs> of Thousand Arrows. Which I mean they're different the different games, different objectives out of those games. 
But it sounded like a lot of fun. I was really sad that I didn't get to play it. You guys were talking about it, it so yeah. much later. Yeah. I love, oh my God, I love games where you talk about relationships. <laughs> Passion de los Passiones is still like one of my top games. Yeah. I loved Hearts of Wu Lin. Like, I, let's get messy. Yeah. Let's get messy with these relationships. I'm about it. Yeah. That is my life. And just in case anyone is listening who's like, Jane Austen isn't for me, I don't think I'm going to try this game. Jane Austen also isn't for me. And we had a friend who was with us at the time who was invited to play and was like, I don't know about Jane Austen stuff. Like, I don't know if I'll be good at it. Yeah. And I remember going to him afterwards and I'm like, you totally would have loved this game. Like, it, it's not the Jane Austen thing, like people got to get past that it's it's a phenomenal game yeah yeah when i when i'm talking about my hang-ups i i'm not i don't think you need to know anything about jane austen i think that's that's like a that's a period genre thing yeah um and um and even then it it didn't affect my enjoyment it's just something that i have difficulty doing i struggle to do double entendres i think um i would i would want to work on that skill and would also want to be more comfortable just saying like oh, my character, like, says a double entendre basically insulting you. Like, just narrating yeah. rather than trying to describe dialogue, like, uh, perform dialogue. I yeah. might try to just describe dialogue a little bit more um, just so that I can get around that weakness. And I don't think you need to do that in order to so enjoy the game. I think we created a story environment where we wanted to do that because it felt right in the setting that we created. Yeah. Um, but if you're not good at it or you don't want to do it, I don't think you need to be able to do it to enjoy the game. No, not at all. We also met up with uh, the team behind the Chimeracast, um, which is a an, another Dungeon World podcast, which I highly recommend. And they were awesome. Uh, we met up with Ryan and Nate of the Chimeracast and played a little card game called Venture Party. Um, and and we had a we had a great time talking about um, role playing games, education, just podcasting, and the struggles that go into podcasting. Different moves for Dungeon World and like different options uh, and stuff for Dungeon World. That was great. Uh, you can find them at Chimera C H I M A E R A Cast Chimera Cast on Twitter, and definitely give them a follow and check them out as well. Also want to. Again, uh, Lauren is at JL underscore nice girl. Oh, and that day, uh, Lauren also brought to our attention a game based on, um, inspired by the story of Our Lady of Fatima called Our Lady. It's this really cool story prompt game that you can get from uh, Jess, whose Twitter handle is at go underscore JG. And we have not actually gotten around to playing that yet. It's a three player game. Um, about like uh, three people who receive a vision from a divine mother, um, and I'm very into it. I really want to play that because that's divine mothers are incredibly my jam. It's like inspired by Portuguese culture, which is incredibly our jam. It's not inspired by Portuguese culture. Okay. It is inspired by true historical events. Oh, all right. <laughs> In, in when, 1920? In, no, it was in between uh, World War One and World War Two. 1930? I should know the year. It you was, should really know the year. It was between World War One and World War Two. Okay. Is what I know because she, because the Virgin Mary told the kids that there would be another World War and it was World War Two. There was a relig- there was a, a sighting of the Virgin Mary in Portugal to three small children. It is a religious true event. So take that with an asterisk because that happened. But that's not the point. My favorite thing about this game is that the way that it was presented to me is 
it was given to me and presented to me because I am Portuguese and because all I do is talk about being <laughs> Portuguese. And it is one of my, like, it is a thing that happens to me in most aspects of my life. Like, at Christmas a couple years ago, we got some Remkins. I love them. They're really pretty. The only reason we got them was because it say, said made in Portugal on the bottom. <laughs> we will sometimes get roosters as gifts just because that's a Portuguese thing. We'll just get roosters. Like, I, being Portuguese is so much a part of my personality, not just, like, a fact about me that like people use it to like, people, connect with me. People know it's, your brand. You got a awesome. brand. I do. It's, <laughs> it's being very weird about being Portuguese, and I love it. Um, but that game does sound like a lot of fun, and, and we can't wait to play it. But that I was skimming through the cards, and like the prompts are so good. They look and the so the cards are designed to look like Portuguese tile, which is like a whole thing, and they're very pretty. It's just it's very pretty. So we saw Lauren on Saturday. We saw the boys on Sunday. Oh, okay. And um, I can't... I Sunday's like a huge blur for me because we also had our panel on yep. Sunday. Sunday, we, we met up with the Cast. We did our panel, which if you haven't listened to it, that came out our last episode. Go and check it out. It was really cool. It was a lot of fun. It was super overwhelming. Um, but we uh, got to do, uh, talk about duet RPGs with some great people who I will um, plug once again. That was uh, the Pod of Love crew at Pod of Love, uh, Ben and Mel, as well as Mackenzie of the uh, one-on-one D&D podcast. Um, Mackenzie's Twitter handle is Mackenzie Lane DA, and their podcast is at one-on-one D&D. Um, and you should check them out. You should listen to our panel. We talked about some great stuff, and it was a lot of fun. And that was a big portion of our Sunday. It was super overwhelming. Yeah. So in this podcast, you can hear that I'm having a hard time talking. I'm not great at talking. I'm, I do it all the time. It's just like sheer, sheer volume that makes it sound like well, I'm good at talking. you also have a little goblin that's like draining the nutrients from your brain. And making my brain turn into a cocoon mush. Yes, that is true. However, I walked into that amphitheater whatever um and it was huge guys it was so big that i walked out i was like no i can't be in this room right now i can't do this so the whole day was overwhelming and i don't think it stopped being overwhelming until i showed up back at my house and pax was over so i don't remember sunday so i might just have to sit and listen to what you guys did on sunday i don't remember it while we were at our panel what were you doing Uh, well i got to listen to like the first 15 minutes of your panel (laughs) which is the first time but uh, I ran another Fall of Magic game uh, to close the day out while you guys were doing your panel, which was also very good. Yeah, I don't. we don't need to keep talking about Fall of Magic, but um, it was the first time, another first for Fall of Magic games, that was the first time the players had the Magus pick another player to be the next Magus. Oh, which I'd never good. had happen before. That is um, And there was another uh, person who picked the fox moniker and was a talking fox. Ah, nice. that's fun. They were very good. That was a good group. That's exciting. That's cool. Uh, Do you think you're going to do Fall Magic again in 2020? Maybe. I just really like watching people just, like, play the game and see what they come up with. Yeah. Um, I think Heart of the Dearnicorn might owe me some money because I think I've I've gotten... I see people that I've run the game with carrying copies of the game afterwards, so... Nice. um, Gotta do a partnership. Get that commission going. Yeah. (laughs) What else did we do? I don't think we did. So one of the things that we did was demo Pathfinder 2E. Is that what you were about to say? That is what I was about to say, yeah. So for years, Diana has been like, we need to play Dungeons & Dragons. I just feel like if I'm going to be a part of this culture and this hobby, then I should have 
some experience with the thing that started it. It's like studying psychology and never reading about Freud. It's like being into fantasy and never reading Lord of the Rings. You guys can't see it, but I'm giving Zach a lot of shade. Because he's never read Lord of the Rings. But, like, you just have to, like, where do... It's got to start somewhere, and it's, like, interesting to see where it's come, so you need to know where it started. I don't know. It's just, like, a thing. I feel like I need to start it. I still haven't played Dungeons & Dragons, but I did get to play a little bit of Pathfinder, and there is a reason I don't play Pathfinder. (laughs) And if I had started playing games, if I had started with games like D&D, like Pathfinder, I would probably find... Powered by the Apocalypse games, really overwhelming. But we have played so many roleplay heavy games. Like, I'm not used to having a map in front of me like that. Or, like, I've had maps in front of me, but they're just kind of, like, for reference points. They're not really, like, Mm -hmm. your position on them isn't important. And this was just so different. It was so crunchy. I I didn't need to have a personality. My character didn't need to have a personality. My character just had, like... Swords. I, f- I even forget what character I had. Like, I, I I just was a pawn. It was a board game. I played a board game. Well, and so so that was the, what the demo was, right? right. They, oh, they yeah. Were... It's very small. It's one action. Yeah, we, we were doing a one-hour demo of Pathfinder 2nd Edition, which um, my very limited understanding is that Pathfinder was sort of split off to kind of keep D&D 3.5 alive. And then... My understanding is that Pathfinder 2e is in a lot of ways very similar to D&D 4e, um, which was also very, like, war game heavy, sort of, like, video gamey in its, like, combat. So I'm sure if we were actually playing Pathfinder, we would have plenty of opportunities for roleplay. It would be a completely different experience. I know that. Like, we played one hour. We had one encounter. It was to learn the rules. It was specifically to learn how Pathfinder 2e was different than Pathfinder... One-y. It was like to talk about the differences yeah. of it. That said, I've never had a miniature that I had to like figure out my position on the board. It was different. It God. was interesting. Yeah, that combat was so crunchy. That yeah. combat was so crunchy yeah. for us. Very crunchy. Like I'm used to like, I don't know, I stab him in the taint. You can't really do that <laughs> in this. It's yeah. a little different. But I mean, that's interesting. I don't. I couldn't do a whole campaign though. Like there's no way. Diana... Yeah. Diana, who doesn't care about rules, I couldn't do this. Even thinking of it from a GM perspective, too, it, I think it takes a very specific... Like, it, different types of games take different GMing skills. Yeah. Our GM was very good, but it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely, like, a numbers-first kind of thing. Like, the, the narrative sort of follows the action and the calculation. Yeah. yeah. It was, I'm, yeah, I'm glad we tried it. It was interesting. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm very glad that we tried it. And our GM was so patient and so kind to us because I know I was asking lots of dumb questions. Um, but we, it, we all were, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, like I would, I would maybe try it again, like a full length, at least like a four or five hour game session just to like get a really good feel for it. But I, I really think because of the games that we have played and the games that we started with that I don't think I could find a ton of enjoyment in a game like that. I'm just like, I, I think because we started not, we didn't start with PBTA games, but we started with. Very, very close to PBTA games. We always start... We never played any games that required miniatures. We've no. never played any games that required, like, um, visualize... Like, like actually seeing the space or, like, right. counting up the distance between um, characters. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, only think, stuff that used, like, vague terms. Yeah. 
I think we were talking about it the other day. I think the crunchiest game that I've ever played is Mouse Guard or Torchbearer. And they're pretty con- they're kind of crunchy, but they're not they're not as crunchy as pa- as Pathfinder was. Yeah. Well, and those are so there's kind of there's a dif- I think they get conflated, but there's a difference also between like trad style games and crunchy games. Torchbearer is very crunchy, but I wouldn't say it's very like traditional in its in its design. Mm-hmm. Um, we've played like uh, Hunter the Reckoning, which I would argue is is pretty traditional. Have you played Hunter? Did you ever play Hunter with I me? I don't think I played Hunter with you. Or if we did, it was very very early on. Yeah. And before Apocalypse World, I don't really remember the games we played before Apocalypse World. Yeah, but even the traditional games we've played have not been as like focused on miniature spacing as as this was where would you put legend of the five rings on that spectrum uh i would i would say legend of the five rings is pretty traditional okay um just in like the way it's set up and like the number of like the because it's stat based and because it's like it's like stat and skill based and it's all like about managing bonuses and you have like the huge eight and a half by 11 character sheet or two of those um, in the one giant eight and a half by 11 inch book. But at the same time, it, from what you told me about that game, it seemed like you got pretty satisfying narratives out of it. I like trad games sometimes, yeah. for sure. It's it's anything that requires that sort of spatial awareness. Like we played, we tried to play Gamma World back in 4E. We tried to play 4E Gamma World and it just did not work for yeah. us because we needed miniatures and battle maps. And I think that might be the thing that trips me up then is the miniatures yeah like i'm just not i don't care i don't care how close i'm standing if i rolled really well then i did the thing i stabbed them in the taint if i rolled really well, i don't care if i'm seven feet away instead of five doesn't matter i could see a world in which i got really really into the tactical fun of those types of games um but that is a world in which i have a shit ton of disposable income god miniatures are so expensive yeah Oh my god! Like, and then I, painting them, and then all the other stuff that comes with them. Yeah. Oh my god, they're so expensive. I mean, even or even there's some there's some awesome artists doing really cool stuff with paper miniatures right now, which is very affordable. But even then, you're then you're drawn on a grid map, like a whiteboard grid map, and it just like I don't know. I would rather be completely theater of the mind than be hastily drawing out little grid maps really quickly so that we can do combat. Yep. Yeah. For two hours, yeah. you know, because that combat takes forever. I don't want to be playing. I don't know. I just can't. Yeah. That's just not where my head is. I think. I agree. All of that said, I enjoyed my Pathfinder one-hour trial. It was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. yeah. It was fun. I enjoyed it. If anyone has a ton of money in miniatures and wants to run some Pathfinder <laughs> for us, I will supply nothing but my rolling. Which will be bad. And the I, rules are always bad. I, I do admit the being able to deny you the ability. Oh no, Dinah, there's no feat that says stab in the taint. Yeah, so I just don't think. Can't do that. Just don't think that's gonna work. Sorry. Don't have the magic slots for that. <laughs> seems <laughs> like a happen. seems like a great excuse to me. <laughs> One day I will successfully stab something in the taint, and where will you be then? You stab shit in the taint all of the time. Yeah, it happens a lot. I know. <laughs> what do you mean successfully? I just. I just I well, I guess if you stab everyone everywhere, eventually you're going to hit someone in the taint. <laughs> I just want a trail of bloody taints behind me. Oh, my God. <laughs> Diana's, Diana's characters volume shoot with their stabbing. They just they stab yeah. so much that eventually they, they 
they hit. To be fair, I don't think I'm going to have a sword in Blood Gold. Really? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to have a sword. Interesting. I think I will have something Trident. <laughs> no, I think I'll have some sort of like axe or hammer or something. I gotta differentiate it from Sal, and I can't change my personality, so the personality is gonna be the same. I have to change the weapon. Luckily, the the beauty of role playing games is that you <laughs> you play a role. You can imagine being anyone. You can, but why? I'm so great. <laughs> but anyway, okay. All that said, I don't. I don't think we did anything else. That was pretty much it. Yeah. I, I think the last thing I want to do is just kind of go over shopping and some of the stuff that I bought. Yeah. Um, I got uh, I got this beautiful art bestiary called uh, Dungeons and Drawings, which I'm absolutely in love with, and it, I I begged Zach to let me like write it off as an expense report for. <laughs> Blood gold. I'm pretty sure I agreed to it immediately. Yeah, <laughs> no, that was the funny part is that I didn't need to beg. I just kept begging, and Zach was like, "Yeah, no, it's fine." <laughs> um, I got Companion's Tale, which I'm super excited to play. It, I, I read through the rules, which are very light, um, and it strikes me as a sort of mashup between The Quiet Year and Fall of Magic. Which, yes, please. Um, and it goes from two to I think. Two to four players, two to six players, um, which I'm very excited to play. Uh, I got Flotsam, which is a GM-less game of living in the uh, shadow of a space station. Uh, I got Dialect, which I still haven't read, but it is about, um, you know, I don't know. It's about language. Everybody talks about how great it is, and I haven't read it quite yet. Um, I also got the board game Good Dog, Bad Zombie, which I cannot wait to play. That's amazing. And uh, the RPG Polaris, which is purely for my collection, like not, I, I want to play it, but I <laughs> don't need to. I get it, Diana. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I was like, I'm pretty sure you already own that game, or I've seen it somewhere, or someone already owns it because I've seen it somewhere. So like, what? Are, mm-hmm. Why? And but it's for collection. Everything is for collection. Yep. <laughs> Uh, I got Goblinville by Michael Dunn O'Connor, which I, I is like I'm super excited. I can't wait to get into that. Uh, and I got the board game Monarch, which Zach and I played at PAX Unplugged uh, like two years ago, and I hadn't seen since. And as we were leaving the convention, I was like, man, I just feel like I have to spend my money on one more thing. And then I saw the banner for Monarch, and I was like, oh, shit. And uh, they had one copy left, and I was like, I have to buy it. Destiny. I have to get it. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's what I spent money on this year. It was a pretty light year for me. I just got Illumat. You got uh, dice. I got dice, but the the only game I bought was Illumat. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Responsible. Uh, I don't know about responsible. I I there just wasn't a lot that I felt like I needed to to buy. Yeah. My big goal was Root, but they didn't have any copies. Yeah, Root had a big showing last year, but they were there. They were only selling um, Vast. Vast. Yeah. But their new game looks really good yeah i I need to check out some playthroughs of oath because it looks phenomenal it looks cool or alternatively i'm speaking for your partner as well zach b don't don't spend the money but (laughs) what about yes but what if oath is the greatest game you've ever played i then you can watch if it changes your life you can watch other people play it and it would be just as satisfying there is one thing that i wanted to talk about that Zach B and I talked about quite a lot actually on Saturday and Sunday, which was how good Zach was at socializing oh, God. during PAX. So good at socializing. I am terrible at socializing at these conventions and he was just like rocking it. You were talking to everybody. And the greatest thing is he got recognized. 
Several times. Several times! You, was, bo- you both did, but... Yeah, but I'm not nearly as recognizable. And it was just... Every time it would happen, Zach B and I would just kind of walk over to the side and be like, oh my god, he got recognized again. This is amazing. Um, I do have to say that... that um, not the being recognized, but the fact that um, you you came up to me later and were like, Zach, you did a really good job talking to people. Um, that was a huge confidence boost for me because I'm really bad at talking to people. No, you um, did great. Yeah, you did a great job. Uh, that, that's a big confidence boost for me because I'm a naturally like very introverted person. I uh, it, it, It's rough for me to talk to people, but it was so much fun talking to everyone. And I do want to say just thank you so so much to everyone who came up and said hi at pax unplugged it was so nice talking to you it was it was amazing talking to you i'm so sorry if i was weird or awkward or i ran away halfway (laughs) in our conversation i'm so sorry um but it was it was amazing talking to you and i'm i'm so glad you came up and said hello to us and please continue to say hello to us and i will keep getting better at having human conversations But uh, but it was it was so cool getting to getting to talk to everybody. This was like the first PAX Unplugged that I've spent a lot of time socializing and talking to people and um, just chatting about games and podcasts and everything. And it was it was so much fun. And for me, as an introvert, it was also like it was very exhausting. It was like very like I was so tired by the end of PAX. I did not talk for like two days after we got home from PAX, but it was it was a good kind of exhausted. It was something that I loved that made me just really happy um, that I got to spend these three days meeting people and talking and, and just sharing this passion with other people and being around like-minded people. It was great. It was so cool. I will say that's something that I always really enjoy from PAX Unplugged. I don't really, I've said it multiple times. I don't really like large groups of people. I don't really like large crowds, but getting to, be kind of surrounded by the hobby and different aspects of the hobby in any way that you want to access it is kind of amazing and is always refreshing, even if it is also exhausting, right? Like if all you want to do is play board games, you can spend three days playing board games all day long for three days and you'll it'll be amazing. Or if you want to play role-playing games, if you want to walk around, if you want to talk to people, if you want to go to panels, like you have all those options. You can access the hobby in whatever way you want. And I think it's it is. It just is, like, refreshing and, and really nice to do, even if it is also exhausting. As far as the podcast goes, too, I, I think sometimes we get caught in the slog of, like, recording and editing, and it feels like a lot sometimes, but to be able to go and see how this show fits in, like, the context of all the other cool stuff that everyone else is doing, I find that really energizing. I yeah. agree, yeah. Well, we are at uh, an hour and 20 minutes that Zach is going to have to edit. Yeah. Fuck. Um, <laughs> one more, one last thing, Diana. Did you see that Mina's doing fan events now again? No, <gasps> that's exciting. Yeah. Yay! So hopefully she's gonna get back into it. Oh yay! Exciting. Did you hear that they're all dating? Is this a K-pop thing? Yes. <laughs> okay. Can did we... you hear JYP lifted the dating ban, so now all of them are like rumored to be in relationships. Well, of course, I, they have, I'm sure I, they have yeah, been. Yeah, yeah. Of course. But good, good for them. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. All right, for I'm Yay gonna. For we can. We still need our January campfire pod. So if we want to do that, we can do that. But we should save the K-pop talk for the campfire pods. K-pop if you want to hear Diana talk about K-pop, you should become a Patreon <laughs> member um, because we release uh, special campfire pods once a month. Got them. Diana <laughs> Got uses em. her time for K drama corner, K-pop corner. K-Corner. To talk about K-pop for some reason. Oh, we're going to get so many Patreons now. <laughs> so excited. Listen, I brought it up at the panel, and someone came up to me and started talking to me about K-dramas. You mock it, 
There's a whole dark web of... Well, I don't, I don't the know. The dark web. Say that. I don't fucking say that. There's a whole section of the internet of lots of people from all over the world who are really into K-pop and really into K-dramas. I'm being, Tapping into that I'm market. being sincere. If, if the Venn diagram of our <laughs> listeners includes people who want to hear you talk about K-pop, they should become a Patreon member. <laughs> we got we to gotta end this. Zach's going to spend yeah, a should. month editing this. Um, I didn't do a good job keeping our conversation conversation reined in. This is our longest episode ever. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the recap, if you want us to be able to do more cool stuff like going to PAX, please become a Patreon member. It allows us to have some money to go on trips and we're going to have a goblin for next PAX Unplugged, so I need that. That's assuming I allow you to go to PAX Unplugged. I need that. Well, I need that monies so that I can say, Diana, we have all the Patreon money that I can use to go to pack, that we can hire a babysitter. <laughs> the, the patrons told Zach he has to go to pack. <laughs> he has to go. I don't know what to tell you. Thank you to Zach B for uh, editing our podcast and making us sound smart. Also, until, th- until this episode. <laughs> well, and also thank you for joining us today and sitting and talking in front of a microphone. Anytime. Yeah. Uh, Want to give a special thank to In Love with Ghost for the song Chilling at Nemo's Place off of the album Healing as our intro and outro. Thank you to our patrons, our current yep. and future and past patrons, everyone who has ever supported or helped us. Uh, thank you again to everyone who said hello to us at PAX Unplugged. It meant the world to us. And I think that's it. Is that it? I think so. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining us this week. Until next time, we hope you have a very nice day. But, like, a very, very nice day.